brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty and today I'm speaking to Diana Evans, the prize-winning and much-loved author of Ordinary People. Her latest novel, A House for Alice, has just been released and I'm delighted to have a chance to talk to her about it and her writing today. Diana, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hi Izzy, thank you. It's good to be here. Well, I've just told you I cried. I did the crying in a coffee shop thing. I don't know if you've ever done that when you've finished a book and you think, I don't know if I should have finished this book in public because I'm crying my eyes out. Oh, that's good to hear. I absolutely loved this book. It's so bursting with life and it's so bursting with, I'm going to come on to this yearning. To me, there was that really popped out to me that all the characters are yearning Mm. for one thing or another. Um, So it's centred around three sisters, Carol, Melissa and Adele and their mum, Alice. They've lost their dad towards the beginning of the book. But there's so many other characters in it, all with their own flaws and their own yearnings, their own tragedies. I'd love to know, what, first of all, what the starting point was for you with the story, because there are two fires early on. There's Grenfell, which is sort of constantly, for me, underlines the whole Mm. plot. And there's a, a smaller fire, which is more personal to the girls. Uh, was that the starting point for you? And yeah, how did you begin? Well, it's interesting that you talk about yearning because it began with, with yearning, with this idea of Alice yearning to go back home to Nigeria and being at this point in her life where she's moved over to the UK and she's had her children here, she's had her family here. And her family is, you know, you'd think that your family is where you're at home. But actually, to her, Nigeria is where she wants to be, even though she'll be away from her family. So I was interested in that yearning and the kind of impracticality and the dichotomy of it and how that yearning could be applied to different characters and different relationships and dynamics in the book. And when I was thinking about this, there was so much going on around me politically and socially in the context of contemporary life in Britain and especially with with Grenfell. I felt like I couldn't ignore it. You know, we're writers and we, we can't ignore these national traumas. So I felt like I had to pay homage to Grenfell in a way but also I wanted to use it as a kind of a backdrop to get into the story of this family so that's where the idea of the two fires came from. I love the yearning element of it and I love the fact that Alice she's having this house built she can't be there she does visit once but she's receiving information about how far along the house is and when she goes there it's it's so different from what she imagined and it made me think about whether people make your home and whether I suppose I suppose the saying the grass is always greener at some points I feel like oh no don't you shouldn't go back you should stay with your daughters and your grandkids and in a way this home your home is England this is where you've spent most of your life but stuff that's happened to her as well as the fact that she feels that she wants to go back to her homeland influences her decision. She talks towards the end about, 
I suppose, giving her life to others, in a sense, Mm. and not wanting something back Mm. herself. I found that really interesting as we get older, that Mm. thing of what is home? Can people make a home? Or do you sometimes have to be, I suppose, for want of a better word, selfish and kind of reclaim that and be assertive? Yeah, I mean, there's so much in the book about home and what home actually is. I think I'm really trying to interrogate that and and dissect it and I'm thinking about it in in terms of the the context of black British life as well and I was trying to look at three generations of black Britons and their differing perspectives on home so Alice is in a position where she's yearning for this place that might not even exist anymore she she belongs to that generation of African Caribbean people who came to the UK some of whom never really intended to stay always planned to go back but you know the longer you leave it um, the, the more difficult it is to go back so when she does go back in the novel it's not what she thought it was going to be and there's this question that arises within her actually is is this where I belong and with the generation below her with Michael and Melissa they're they're in a position where they're born in the UK but there's always this sense at the edge of their existence is that they don't belong here or are not fully accepted here and then the generation below that who are born here their perspective on it is this is where we live but I think there is this overarching doubt of what home is in the context of all of these characters. I think as you get older, you know, we do reach a point where time is running out and we want to do what's right for us, what what we truly want. But what is the impact on those that you love? And to what extent can we find home in a place anyway? Isn't it more an amalgamation of circumstances? Isn't it more a person or or even yourself? You know, you, yeah, I was going to say maybe your spiritual beliefs or yeah. your routine. There's that Bob Marley quote, "My home is in my head," and I really, I really connect to that idea that um, it's not necessarily about a geographical place or national borders. It's more about how you feel and the people around you and, and how you feel with them in yourself. And maybe what you feel you haven't had time for in your life, like when a life's been really busy. It, it's almost like you think, well, actually, if I didn't have any responsibility, this is what I would do. And maybe yeah. it's the, the only time that if you're lucky enough to have the choice, you can say, I'm going to do this. Yeah, exactly. And you, you just reach that point where you have to get it. You have to just claim that time and that dream. You know, you can go through your whole life having a dream and achieving this dream and, and you, you can get to 50, 60 and Thank God I still haven't got that thing. And the less time you have, the more desperate you get to go and get it. And that's the situation that Alice is in, I think. And it completely consumes her sense of who she is and where she is. She dreams of Nigeria so strongly and that's all she really wants is to be in that place. And it doesn't matter what has to happen in order for her to get that, but she has to get it. It's almost as if her yearning is the thing that she has left. That is her final power. Yeah, and she draws strength from it, it seems. Yeah. Even straight after Cornelius dies, she's thinking about the house. 
and she's yeah. um, drawing strength and away from that dream. There's different types of yearning in it. There's Nicole, who's a character who's the new wife of Michael, who is one of the sister's exes, Melissa's ex. I love Nicole. So I can just picture her, all her clothes, the way she goes out, the way she refuses to let go as a middle-aged woman, which is what I am. I mean, that thing of like, I will not stop. I just, I, <laughs> She really resonated with me. I love it. And she's yearning for, I suppose... For me, like what she had in her singing career maybe a decade ago mm. when she was, she didn't quite know it was peaking, but it was, and yeah. she won't let go of that. And you write really beautifully about Ewing. There's two things you say that I loved. There's a bereaved father, Damien, in it, who's a kind of family friend of Michael and Melissa's, yeah. isn't he? It's a bit more complicated than that, but a beautiful storyline about him very moving. And well, he thinks that all yearning comes from obstruction. We are released and we cease to yearn. And I love that because it's like when you've got an obstruction, you have to get round it. I wonder what you thought about that. Is there is there a value in yearning that sometimes when you've got these obstructions, it's quite useful because you've got mm. something to push against? Yeah, exactly. It's it's empowering limitation or any kind of restriction. It makes you work harder in a way to get around it. I think that's the position that Damien's in. Like he's wanted to lead this life of freedom and creativity, but has become trapped in conventional family life. And then he finally plucks up the courage to leave his family. And then when he does, he loses all ambition. <laughs> like he, he loses he loses his sense of purpose because there's nothing to push up against him. And I think that's, you know, it's very indicative of the human condition in general. We're we're driven by yearning. You know, Nicole is, is driven by yearning. She's actually my favourite character in the novel. She was so fun to write. In all my novels, there's usually a character who kind of skits across the page and, and just comes to life. And, and Nicole was like that. And she's a lot like me as well. She's had this career where she was doing really well and she thought she was going to be this huge star and she was just on the cusp of it. But then it kind of went out and she had a son and she she had to get a, a proper job to pay the bills and bring up her son. And now she's just turned 50, but she still wants the same things that she had when she was in her 20s or 30s and what I love about her is she's just just going for it she's not letting anything stop her that she kind of lives her yearning she'll just keep going and that's what gives her her personality her yearning is her fire absolutely she wears it on as you say she is the yearning it's not it's not something enclosed within her that she dreams about she kind of walks her dreams doesn't she yeah and she'd be so fun to have a night out with as well she would would. yeah that's that scene of her dancing in the club in Portugal honestly it was like she was she was in the room with me or, or, or I was in that club dancing with her. I felt very, very close to her, very fond of her. I'm sure. Like, do you have that thing where, you know, when you finish writing for the day, is it sometimes like you dream about the characters and like they're with you throughout mm. the night and you kind of wake up and... Yeah, I, I can hear their voices in, in my head. And I, I heard Nicole a lot and I was always writing down things that she was saying. Often after a writing session, I will go downstairs because I work up in the loft at the top of my house and I'll go downstairs and I might go for a walk. I I might start cooking. And Nicole, especially, her voice was so strong. She was carrying on talking and little bits of conversation and like a fight that she and Michael were having. And so that's why I always have my post-its at hand so that I can just jot 
everything down. But Nicole almost, she almost wrote herself. She kind of came out of nowhere. And those are the best characters, the ones that you don't do any work on. They just kind of appear because of the strength of the world that you've built with the other characters. Yeah, secure enough for them to just... Yeah, yeah. they're free. There's this freeness about them. Melissa says later... She says yearning is direction, is energy. And I think what's lovely about that is that Melissa and Nicole are both competing for Michael's heart. So they share that. Melissa's so different from Nicole, but I really like the fact that Melissa was the character who said yearning is direction, is energy. And it's Nicole who kind of has that energy and just lives it. Yeah, yes, I know. Melissa is, she has the same yearning, but it's in, it's in a different way. It's, it's, it's not necessarily for the bright lights and the music and the fire. It's more Melissa has a, a yearning to be kind of self-sufficient and to, to fully manifest herself in the world. And she feels that she is obstructed in that mission in the context of any relationship that she's in, which is why the relationship with Michael broke down. There's this fundamental inability in Melissa to be fully present in a relationship. But I think her yearning is, is a very different yearning from Nicole's and probably an, an unhealthy yearning. Sometimes yearnings can be unhealthy and lead us into a direction that doesn't necessarily help us. Yeah. Well, the method, I suppose, can be unhealthy, that the yearning, that the way you're trying to get to that dream isn't isn't the healthy way. Yes. Um, yeah. Melissa's also got childhood trauma, which you touch on, mm. which I, I assume sort of plays a part in that inability to get to the point of being present in a relationship. Yes. Yeah. And she, she shares that kind of a childhood unhappiness with Damien. I think Damien and Melissa are are similar characters. I think they're working from the same place of having been in difficult childhoods that are dominated by a patriarchal male figure. And I think the question that they both struggle with is, is there like an untainted self that we have despite what has happened to us in our childhoods that we can somehow return to when we leave the house or the circumstances of our childhood and that is the question that I think haunts both of them and I think we don't ever really escape our childhoods and we can try and form these new selves but I think the ghost of childhood it stays within us and I think it kind of defines our lives in a very physical sense. So so Melissa has this real difficulty with houses and living in houses because of the context of her childhood. So she's kind of still living in the same house where she grew up. And so I guess the question for her is, will she ever find this other self? That's what she's yearning for, for the self, but does it really exist in the first place? And then she talks to um, a therapist later mm. much later on towards yes. the end of the book oh, I love that the fact that you give her full name therapist <laughs> really yeah whereas you don't give it for lots of the other characters but the fact that you give her full name mm. is like you're hearing it really from Melissa's point of view like yes I'm going to see this person and yeah I love those tiny touches that you do that bring characters who may only be in it a little bit really to life Mm. like it somehow giving the full name just gives so much nuance to yeah it does yeah that's true that's that's a that's a really good 
point because um, we don't really see much of Debbie, the therapist, but it felt natural that we should know her full name because she's a stranger. She's a stranger to us. And she's also got a different relationship to Melissa. She's there in a kind of professional capacity. So it it almost feels just Mm. right to know her full name. Like Melissa would have Googled her and had to type in the full name. And those tiny touches just make such a difference. And it might have been something that you subconsciously did. (laughs) I think I did. I think I did. Yeah, I do feel that that any character who's in the pages of a book for me, I want them to feel like they're actually there as as real as possible. And and it can just be like a couple of things that you mentioned that can really bring somebody to life because I want them to feel like they're fully rounded, even though they're a very minor character. There's no moment in it where you go, I didn't need to know that or I can't quite put my finger on why a bad writer could say this man was wearing a brown hat and carrying a shabby carrier bag from Sainsbury's. And I'd go, I don't want to, yeah, I feel like you could go. It was very, and I'd go, yeah, I picture him and I, I kind of feel his humanness. And I, yeah, yeah. So I think there's a, I think there's a kind of magic about that, but yeah, yeah you do it. Ours is not to question sometimes, is it? <laughs> um, well, we always ask people to bring objects along to this. You've touched on the post-its, so why don't we yeah. start with the post-its? Because oh, I'm right. really intrigued by this. Um, yeah, so you've got post-its. Are they in every room or just tell uh, me yeah, about them? Yeah, they're first pretty up. much in every room. Yeah, they're in the bedroom, in, in my study, in the kitchen, in the hallway, because I've always got so much to think about because I have a family and I find having a family and being a writer, they're both so all-consuming. And I find that mentally my my mind is spread very thin. I'm having to hold a lot of things in my head at the same time. And I've got to this point with the post-its where I literally can't function without them. Anything I need to remember, I'll jot up the post-it. It used to be that I just had a notebook and that was where I'd put everything that I needed to remember. But the notebook isn't enough anymore because I can't carry it around with me everywhere. Sure. And sometimes I just don't. I'm not in the same room as the notebook. So I'll just grab a post-it instead. And But it's got to the point where there's just piles of post-its everywhere. It's like it's almost like an OCD thing. <laughs> so do I'm going to have to do something about it. I have to go and see <laughs> Debbie about my post-it You'll have to do a documentary on you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, do you stick them to the wall or do you leave them stuck? to the table they're on the wall yeah and they're on my printer which is next to my computer they're on my bedside table they're on my dressing table I have to constantly be eliminating them so that there's not too much because after a while it's kind of defeating the purpose of the post-it because they don't stand out anymore there's too many of them yeah do you see what I mean (laughs) yeah that is uh, becoming a bit of a problem I need to sort that out but Post-it it sounds therapy. like, you know, Nicole's yeah. such a fiery character. Yeah, yeah. She'll probably say a line, you think, I've got to put this you in. Like exactly. So do they tend to be things like that, like bits of conversation rather than like a fundamental plot point? Or can they just be everything? Yes, yeah, it's, it's everything. Sometimes it's dialogue, a really specific piece of dialogue that if I don't write it down there, then I won't remember it in the same way. It will just go out of my head. And sometimes it's an overall intention that I want to focus on in in my writing some element of my master plan or something yeah and then other times it's just like a dentist appointment or something that I have to yeah sure so it can be yeah it can be lots to do with family life does anyone ever fiddle with them how old are your kids 
now. Uh, they're 18 and 12. Okay, um, so they won't necessarily sort of pick them up and move them. And... No, they don't. I think um, I think that they understand because I often say to them, like, if they want me to do something or if we have to remember something to do with their their own lives, um, I'll say to them, oh, I'll just write it down. Otherwise, I won't remember. So, so they know that I'm like that. If they, if they tell me something and I don't write it down, then it just will be out of my head. So they, they kind of understand and they, they, they respect the presence of the, the posters <laughs> and the necessity of it. I think it's very, I think it's much better than using your phone. Like the times yeah. that I try and use my phone notes for things, I just check my emails reflexively and then I'm in the phone. Yeah, I can't use the notes on the phone because I find that I I can't if I can't physically see it, it's still I still won't remember it because I have to go into the notes app and then find the right note. So it's like you're looking for something, but if it's already there in front of you, then you then you can't forget. Yeah, and also you're, I think something about forming the words physically that yeah. helps you to remember it. Yeah, you might not even need head. to look at the post it yeah. afterwards. You know, um, yeah. my mum puts when she has to remember something, she just puts an item in the in the hall so that she'd trip mm. over it if she didn't. <laughs> I like, do that the item well. doesn't have to be related to the thing, really, do you? <laughs> I like if there's a letter I need to post or someone needs to remember to polish their shoes for school, I'll just leave it in the middle of the hallway yeah. so that you, so you just can't forget. Yeah. And there are different colours of post-its as well. Like I like the yellow ones, but the orange ones are like a special kind of post-it things that I absolutely can't forget. <laughs> I think this is yeah. great and highly necessary. I really do. I think it's a brilliant system. I don't think you should go and see anyone about okay. this. I think okay, should... thank you. That, yeah. that makes me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing that jumps out is the idea of letting go, kind of letting go of what we expect from other humans. I, I suppose coming to terms with the fact that we might not get everything that we want, introducing compassion. There's a big argument towards the end where empathy is introduced and as, as the dust settles, it feels like they've all had to kind of bring in a bit of empathy. And mm. um, I was wondering, in terms of how hard you are on yourself, like if you're having a day where you've, you know, you've got a deadline and you're kind of thinking, do you feel like as your career's gone on, you've got better at being more compassionate towards yourself? A little bit. Slightly. I've I've always been incredibly hardworking and I've always felt that that process of working hard, it gives me purpose in life and I, I kind of need that sense of achievement. I don't like to get to the end of a day and feel like I haven't achieved anything. And in my writing, I have word count targets. While I'm working on a first draft, I need to get a thousand words a day done. Otherwise, I feel like I'm a failure. And which, and I think there is an unhealthy slant to that level of, of drivenness, which I think is, it does ebb away. And I think I'm not as hard on myself as I used to be. Because I'm, I think it's partly to do with having kids, aging. You just realise that you can't keep pushing yourself like a cart horse forever because you'll just end up not being able to achieve anything. So you do have to lower your standards a little bit. And I think getting to the end of a novel, I do find that I have to allow myself to let the project not be as perfect as I want it to be. And that's something that I've learnt early on in my writing. I almost couldn't write a sentence because it wasn't perfect enough. Things didn't come out the way I wanted them to magically appear as they were in my head. It was always inadequate. But I've realised the more I've written that 
that is really destructive to the writing and that you do have to allow yourself an element of imperfection, you know, because if it's perfect, then it's not really real and it's not achievable. That's a really important thing that I've learned. Well, let's move on to the next item. This is the 26A flapjack. Yes. Very intrigued by this. I know 26A is one of your previous books. So yeah, tell us about the flapjack. Yeah, 26A was my first book and my publisher, Chetto and Windows, they made these flapjacks to help market the book. And I was just really blown away by that because the twins, who are the main characters in in the book, they they set up this kind of flapjack company called the Famous Flapjack Twins. And so the publisher made a feature of this and actually made the flapjacks and got them labelled and everything with the image of the cover of the book and their book title. And so I still have one of those flapjacks. Like they sent them out to booksellers and journalists and things, but I got one and I never ate it. I just kept it. So now it's about, that was in 2005. So (laughs) nearly 20 years old. Yeah. I wonder, can you see it? Is it in a box or can you? Yeah, it's in a clear plastic wrapper. So it's basically almost white now. It's completely (laughs) mouldy. I love this. It's like an experiment as in, yeah. yeah. What happens to oats if you leave them for long enough? (laughs) But I also really understand why you wanted to keep it, because if you'd taken a photo of it or something, it just wouldn't have been the same. You need the actual thing. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like a fossil. It's like watching something mutate into into complete rot. <laughs> you can just <laughs> never eat it. But it's it's just like a souvenir, really, of that time of publishing my first book, because I never really had any big ideas about being published. Like my writing career and the process of being published has all been quite organic. It wasn't like I ever yearned to be a writer or anything like that. It's just that I wanted to write this story and then I wrote it and and set about getting it published. But I didn't really have any expectations for it at all. So it was it was all a huge surprise the way it was received and that and that it touched people. I was really happy about that. And the, the flapjack is kind of like a celebration of that. And, and it also makes me think of my twin because the 26th say was based on the death of my twin. And uh, it makes me feel, she'd really like it. She'd really just like the idea of them having made a flapjack. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it has a lot of sentimental value. So it's on my shelf of, of special things in my study, which includes other things like stones and um, souvenirs and things that my mum has given me. I was listening to you talk about 26A and talk about how initially it wasn't from the point of view of of them as children, that Mm. it was from them later in life and the moment when you realised actually it has more resonance Mm. if they are children and sort of changing sounds quite drastically what you'd written do you think that's a really important lesson to learn that actually that first draft sometimes changes beyond recognition yeah sometimes you can't go forward you might have written loads but there's something that's not right and you can't go forward and you can't finish it so therefore it's like you're at square one even though you've, you've physically written loads so something has to happen some big shift had to happen and It was only when I actually read it to other people, I read a little bit of what I had to a writing workshop at UEA where I was doing an MA in writing. And I read a section where the twins are in this shop and they're stealing some sweets from Woolworths. And the people in the workshop were were really kind of 
they, they said, oh, what happens to these twins then in the story? And I said, oh, one of them dies. And they, they went, oh, and there was this kind of collective gasp in the room. And I realised that I wanted the reader to feel that in the context of the story, yes, knowing yeah. who these characters were. Whereas what I had before, I had started with the fact of, of the death. So I'd completely lost the whole dramatic worth of, of the story and the impact of it. So that's when I realised that I had to completely change the structure. And, and that's when I was able to finish it. So it kind of got me unstuck, even though it felt like a huge upheaval of what I'd already done so far. It felt like I had to throw loads away. But at the same time, it was a huge release because I, I could move forward finally. And then it wouldn't have existed without that initial mm. um, draft. Yeah. And actually, if you hadn't laid yourself vulnerable by sharing some of it, mm. you couldn't have moved on. I think yeah. that's the thing. You, I think you can sometimes write things and think, I don't know what's wrong, but it doesn't sit quite right. But then if you go, oh, I'll just leave it, mm. that's such, you're really throwing it all away. Whereas you shared it with people, which I think is sometimes terrifying, especially mm. if you're not 100% happy with it. And yeah. that was the thing you having that moment in the room together that made you realise it. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you really have to take a lot of risks in writing. And I think you also have to know when to share something because I, I do tend to hold on to things and keep them close and, and want things to be absolutely perfect or the best I can make them before I let anybody see it. And I had to just let that go. And I was really shy about reading it in front of people. So I, I actually really had to get over a hurdle and, and get up and read it. But that risk, you know, it freed me. Yeah, that day you could have said, actually, I'm just going to sit this one out. Yeah. And then, thank goodness you didn't because, you know, <laughs> you yeah. changed the story so much. Um, OK, um, we're moving on to your next item, although I could keep talking about the flapjack. I've got a piece of wedding cake from my cousin's wedding mm-hmm. that's about 10 years old. It's in a box I haven't opened, so I think I'm going to go home and open it and see. Yeah, have a look. That's gone (laughs) grey. Yeah, my son tried to eat it once and I was like, no, you can't eat that. You'll get sick. It'll kill you. Also, don't eat my really important (laughs) thing. Exactly. It's my fossil. How dare you? (laughs) Um, So the next item is your guitar. Yes, my guitar. (laughs) Yeah, well, I like to play and I see myself as a bit of a failed musician I mean I never could have been a musician that implies that I I had talent but I didn't but I'm really interested in I love music and I've tried to learn the guitar and I've tried to learn the piano and I've kind of given up a little bit with the piano because it's defeated me but with the guitar I can tinker a bit and I like to play after writing I played a bit this morning I like to sing I know a few chords I'm, I'm on the bar chords at the moment, which are really tricky. They are tricky. Your... I play guitar as well. I find it really hard to do bar yeah, chords. Yeah, they're really hard. Yeah. It's, it's like a hurdle you have to go over, isn't it? Yeah. And the speed of moving between chords is really difficult when it's a bar chord. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it is. I just cheat and do F with my first and second fingers. Do you? And just play the top four strings, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. My daughter <laughs> told me about that. Um, yeah. But that feels like another thing I have to learn. So I'm trying to just kind of... Go for it with the bar chords. I think it's good. <laughs> You've got the discipline. <laughs> yeah, well, I've realised that you have to bend your whole forearm. Yeah, Because I, I was trying do. to do it just by bending the back of my hand, but you have to use your whole arm, bring it all the way around. Okay. Yeah, I'm it works. go home it and works. try and do F with the forearm bend. I think that's where <laughs> yeah, I Yeah, but I love singing. I and love do you write your own songs or when you tinker, are you doing covers or are you just kind of noodling I'm, I'm away? I'm just, um, I'll just pick a song that I like. Yeah. 
and I'll just learn the chords and I'll play it. I have written one song when I when I was very young. I was about 16 or something. And I can play that as well. There's about four songs that I can play. And I'm not very good at all. I, I can't sing, but I just feel so happy when I'm singing and playing the guitar. And is it that thing where if someone overheard, you'd feel exposed? Or is it like a secret thing, this that you do to relax? Or would you sing with your family? I'll sing like in front of my family. Yeah. But I'd, I wouldn't like perform or anything. I mean, I used to dance and so I used to perform in that sense but performing with my voice you know singing that's a different matter I don't think I'd be able to do that unless I was a backing singer or something I'd actually love to be in a band I could totally imagine you in a band yes I'd love that if anyone wants me to do some backing vocals just you know spread the word yeah okay yeah if you're listening yeah (laughs) then you could do book readings between the songs it'd be this kind of avant-garde yeah Yeah, I can picture it all yeah (laughs) you're saying that you play the music when you've finished writing presumably as a kind of reward do you listen to music when you're writing or is there a time and a place for music in your life do you prefer silence to write yeah I have to have pure silence to write so I usually wear earphones so that I can can't even hear the silence yeah it's just complete nothingness and sometimes if I'm just studying rather than writing if I'm reading or doing some research then I can listen to some instrumental jazz but nothing with a voice in it yeah because it's distracting I love listening to music um, after writing or just generally I'll, I'm always having music on in the background I like going through my vinyl and just picking old songs from from back in the day I used to listen to Nigeria with my sisters and reggae songs from my teenage years and I think um, music is is so powerful in terms of memory and bringing you back to different parts of your life and just the energy, you know. I think because my writing is such a sedentary activity, I find that the music as a contrast is so enlivening, you know, physically enlivening. I'll dance a lot as well. So, yeah, music's really important. I'm really into Burner Boy at the moment. But that's Love exciting to have that, to look forward to that as a kind of, now you've done the work, you can take yeah. that time, you can choose exactly the right tune for that moment, you can have a dance. So I yeah. think that the, the timing is so important with, well, certainly with me, if we in the car, if we put a CD on from yeah. when I was 14, it's almost too much to listen to while I'm driving. I want to concentrate on it properly. I get annoyed yeah. with it being on. <laughs> I want to have kind of earned the right to listen to it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. But I, I do love driving and music, though. Having said that, I just love being on an open road and just listening to a a song that just calls your soul. There's nothing yeah. like that. Maybe it's driving through Crystal Palace at five miles an hour that's the problem. I need to get on an open road. <laughs> open road is very important. Yeah, when yeah. Those, those country lanes or the motorways. Yeah, it's not quite the same when you're in a traffic jam and everyone's it's not. Sleeping. No, it's not. <laughs> Usually if I'm in traffic, then it's Radio 4 or something yeah. like that. <laughs> Something not joyous. Yeah, exactly. Just get you through it. (laughs) Not there's anything wrong with Radio 4 for anyone. No, Radio 4 is brilliant. (laughs) But at the right time. Yeah. You like listening to people. You want to listen to people talking. You don't want to listen. You don't want to be fully absorbed in music. No, I totally get it. Yeah. Um, There's a bit where I really like this. So Michael says of Larry, who I consider a love rival of his, really, even though, you (laughs) know, he is. They're very different characters, um, but they're kind of both fighting over Nicole. He says of Larry, who is another 
brilliant character. We meet him playing golf. He says he's one of those people who accepts the limits of their allowance at humanness and adjusts themselves around it. Now, I absolutely love that because that's like the opposite from how I try to live. It's like I try and push every kind of boundary I can. Are you like that? Do you notice this quality in other people? I'm just really interested in how you feel about people who you feel kind of have gone, okay, yeah, that's that's life. I'll just, yeah, won't take any risks. I'll just live. What do you think? Yeah, I'm not like that at all. Well, well I hope I'm not. No, I don't think you are. <laughs> but I do see what irritates Michael so much about Larry, that he's somebody who's kind of stopped trying, Yeah, really. Um, and I think that can happen a lot to people in midlife when people have been trying to achieve their dreams or, or trying to fit themselves into a certain social or political system that doesn't feed them. And in the end, they just kind of give up and think, oh, OK, I'll just make do with what I've been given or what I can manage. And it, there's a sadness about it. And, yeah. And I think uh, Michael's thinking about Larry in terms of the, the kind of the black activist movement. And he sees him as somebody who's, who's kind of stopped trying to contribute to that reach for equality in any way. And he's kind of accepted his position. And Michael is the opposite of that. He's somebody who is very much a part of the the kind of the anti-racist movement. And he's always striving to contribute to that. And his job is part of that as well, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So he works for a youth justice organisation. He's their director. So he's very much politically engaged and so I think there's an element in there of conflict between those two men. They're two very different kinds of black British men. And I think Michael's attitude towards Larry is also a little bit condescending and a bit imperious, you know, and that he expects Larry to be a certain thing. In doing that, he's placing a, a limitation on Larry because Larry is a black male and he feels like black men should be um, contributing to this cause. And if they're not, then they're somehow deficient. And that that's sad as well, that he's not just allowing him to be who he is, that Larry's race is imposing a certain behaviour or expectation on him. Yeah. So he's limiting his freedom. And so I think it, it's, it's an observation, really, of the impact, those very nuanced impositions of race onto the way people behave towards each other. Mm. I think you're right about middle age as well. It feels like in middle age things become hardened and set in a way that when we're younger we're, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s that I could go this way or that way and that I could mm. be swept up in. And then I think what happens and sort of I look around me as well, my friends, and it's just like, okay, it feels like that's the newspaper you're always going to buy now yeah. and this is the thing you're always going to think. And obviously yeah. I've got a different, completely different viewpoint as a white woman, but mm. just from my experience of looking around, just going, oh, okay, so you're always going to have pizza on a Monday night. You're always going <laughs> yeah. to have spaghetti on a Tuesday. Come on, you know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I think a lot of people lose their fire as they get older. And the, the people who don't, you know, they shine. They, they really do. I have friends like that and I know they'll... They'll they'll just never change. They'll, they'll always be. I have one friend in particular who has always been really kind of like fiery and feisty and militant. And and now she's, you know, she's in a conventional family unit and has like the two kids. And But she's, she's still completely herself. She's one of those lights who is always going to 
shine. She's kind of indestructible. And I think that's the best way to be, you know, and it's that yearning to, to just keep yourself, you know, isn't that the, that's the kind of task that is given to us when we're born to keep a hold of yourself. Yeah. And I think also perhaps to remain curious so Mm. that you never lose that and you're interested in other people's stories and that's how you grow and that might change your mind about certain things. And yeah, I feel like sometimes that's a big part for me of railing against that thing of getting older, just to go, Mm. no, don't close down and say this is what I'll always think and yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think in, in a way, Larry, is he's one of those lights at, at the same time as being someone who's given up because he says to Michael, find your joy. Yeah. And Larry's found his joy. He's got his golf and he's got his <laughs> house that he won. And it's his joy that is keeping him going. Yeah. Um, OK, well, let's move on to the next item. Um, this is... Um, a Lowry Tate exhibition poster for the painting of modern life um, and a piece by your sister, the artist Mm. Mary Evans. Yeah, so um, I have lots of pictures up on my walls, but those two in particular I mentioned because they're really important for my work. The L.S. Lowry painting, it's, it's called Industrial Landscape. And I saw it at the 2013 Tate Britain exhibition. And I just love the way his paintings, they have these really tiny human figures and they're walking around in this particular painting. There's a a row of houses and there's streets and there's factory chimneys and municipal buildings in the background. And this is really kind of urban landscape. And the figures are also intricately defined and then and they feel very alive and it speaks to what I'm trying to do in my work it always makes me feel reinvigorated in my work that I'm trying to portray the lives of ordinary people really it's the ordinary people project in this very psychologically astute and acute way and my sister Mary Evans's work does the same thing there's this painting that I have um it's so it's not a painting it's more of a her work is it's it's fine art she doesn't paint she cuts out figures and shapes and and she mounts them onto white paper and in this particular piece uh the figures are in the hold of a of a slave ship of the middle passage and um, this is one of the the main features of her work Uh, and and the figures are all very like in an actual slave ship all the the slaves were kept very tightly bound together and they'd have about like maybe 10 inches above them of space and then they were shackled together in pairs lots of them died and fell sick but in my sister's work, even though it's called Hold, this picture, even though they're in the hold of this ship, every single figure is free and has space around them. And they're all in different kinds of poses. Some of them are sitting down. Um, some of them are standing up, holding their arms. There's pregnant women. Um, there's children. And I just find it very moving, the, the intricacy of the figures, the care that she's taken to arrange them in this way, and that they're all in um, poses of full physical presence rather than shackled to each other. So I think it's a really important piece of work. So I see it when I wake up every morning and it also makes me feel refocused in my work. Do you think that artists of all kinds have a duty to, I know like you talked about you weren't able to ignore what was going on with Grenfell. Do you think that artists have a duty to 
involve their social conscience in their work? Do you think work often has a deeper resonance if it does have that meaning? Yeah, I do. And I think all writing really is political because it's all about the voice. It's all about expressing the voice. And when writers are speaking from places in society that have been marginalised, that that itself is a political act. But I do think that writers have power to hold those with political power to account. And that I particularly feel a call to to record and to remember and to not let those who have been wronged or, in the case of Grenfell, whose voices can no longer speak, to not let them be lost or forgotten in the heart of the nation. I do feel that very strongly, that I've always wanted to use my work as a social tool in some way. And is that there in the art that you consume? Like, would you much prefer to read something that has that kind of depth to it rather than say something that's just about a woman who goes on holiday and falls in love with a man or something? Well, I think all, I really do think all writing is political. And even a story like that, there's, um, there was a lot to think about. And, you know, who is the woman and yeah. who is the man and where have they gone? You yeah, know, I suppose so even their can... backgrounds, their social backgrounds, yeah. their ethnic backgrounds. Their... You're right, it doesn't necessarily have to be something about a historical event mm. or even to mention a specific thing, does it? You mm. can't help but, but, yeah, that your voice is affected by what yeah. you believe and who you are. Yeah. You write about death so eloquently. Um, Thank you. One thing that I loved is that, and I can't remember the words and I can't even remember who said it, but I'm sure you will. So there's a bit where they they talk about how after someone's died, in some ways the grief gets stronger because events happen that you can't tell them about. So the chasm mm. kind of grows wider. Um, mm. And I lost my dad in 2011. And that's how I often feel about him, that although in a sense the grief's abated, it, I, I felt really comforted when I read that because I think sometimes in bereavement you can feel quite alone. Mm-hmm. And when I read something like that that really touches me, it just makes me feel understood. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure your work has reached out to lots of people like that. Do you take comfort from knowing that, that it has that power to invoke peace within Mm. people as well as make them laugh and move them? Yeah, that's really wonderful to hear because that's one of the intentions, I guess, in my work, to offer comfort or understanding, a sense that you're not alone. I think literature really has power to do that. And particularly with grief, you know, we all live with it. And it is one of those things that you just learn to live with things. Some things don't pass, you know, the intensity of things can pass. But grief itself is, it's everlasting. You just, you learn to carry it. And I think when I, when I read things in books that help me to articulate something within myself. I always feel very supported. So I'm glad that my books offer that as well. This is the last question. I really believe that when you walk into a building and I feel like I can feel the history of the building and the kind of energy, stuff that's gone on in there, I don't think that just disappears. Mm. I'd love to know what you think of whether buildings can hold those memories. I know you talk a little bit about it when they're 
thinking of selling Cornelius's house and they're talking about a new family moving in and the house is lying empty. They talk about the memories within the walls that you'll never get rid of. But also mm-hmm. a lot of the characters are haunted by various things. They have kind of half dreams, half visions. Do you believe a person can be haunted? And is that good or bad if they can? If they can be haunted by elders. spirit, elders. I suppose. Oh. Can the spirit kind of still be there in the world that we live in, in various ways, maybe in the walls or in dreams. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I I do think that we hold the people that we love when they die. I don't think people wholly leave you. I think um, they remain within us and, and around us. So, I mean, it depends on the nature of the the haunting. Some hauntings can be comforting and sweet and others can be quite frightening. I personally feel that I am haunted by by the spirit of my twin, but in a in a kind of a good way, I feel like there's two of me. And that, that's because of the nature of the relationships. That's what I mean about how people stay with you. It's defined by your perception of that person as well. Even if even if it might not be technically real or scientifically real. I think our experience is defined by our psychological history and the relationships that we've had and the dynamics between us and other people and our family makeups. All of that makes who we are and defines our general experience. So we can feel like we're haunted. Therefore, we are. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do completely see what you mean. Mm. And also the fact that no one else is ever really privy to the relationship you have with someone. Like, yeah. in a way, you aren't. You're They're just there. And yeah. you're you and they're them. And that goes so deep mm. that I think the difficult thing sometimes when someone dies is that everyone wants to lay claim to them in some way and go, mm. well, I remember this thing they did. Or, oh, they always used to say this to me. And things happen on a really deep level that we don't even really understand. So what you're saying makes complete sense because it's Mm. like, I feel like that with dad. And I think that's a very wonderful thing. It can be scary too. It can be. Yeah. Yes. Especially the dreams. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Nightmares as well. But it's all because of the strength of a connection with another person, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I feel like this, I could have done five hours. <laughs> Me too, thank you. <laughs> no, it's it's brilliant. Um, and as I say, I love the book. Don't read the end in a coffee shop unless you want to cry in front of people, which you might not mind doing. That's absolutely fine. I, I don't really mind. mind. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I was just sort of holding the book up going, yes, buy this. This is what I'm making <laughs> oh, you cry. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you for listening wherever you are. And if you haven't already, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review and help get the word out. And if you'd like to find out more about A House for Alice and the other books we've been talking about on the podcast recently, head over to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts. <laughs>